Will White. Yes, sir. Welcome to the House Nerd Show. Thank you. So we're going to dive here now. This is going to be episode two mm. of the multifamily discussion. Now, what's interesting about this is this is also going to be a deal breakdown front to back, I think, and a season, maybe even a season breakdown, if, dare I say. Yeah. Which is, if you'll think back to our pilot, you millions of listeners, one of the types of episodes we want to do is a breakdown of, of a deal so that you get real numbers, real discussion. Um, and this is going to give you a run from 2011, roughly, to 2020 of Will and Phil's multifamily plays what they looked like, why they chose them, some of the mechanics of those deals. You're going to hear about the 20 house package that Will referenced in episode one and why he perceived he had to get rid of those. Should he, should he have kept them? Should he have done what he did? Any regrets there? Wink, wink. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, and then we'll dive some more into, you'll hear some of the underwriting of multifamily and those kind of things. So let's just kick it off right there, Will, with you mentioned in episode one of the multifamily single family discussion that you had a 20 house single family portfolio in the Jackson, Mississippi area. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd met Phil Wilson, the man with the best hair in the Tri-County area. Yeah, bar none, male or female. Yep. No doubt. You met him. (laughs) He talked you into multifamily, presented it to you. You were like, yeah, I can get behind that. And then you said immediately, if I'm going to do that, I've got to sell my 20 houses to focus on this deal that we found in Foley. Yeah, that came several months later after we had taken the property down. Okay. But I was just like, man, we've got something here. I can just get rid of this 20 house portfolio. Yeah. Actually, let me say one thing is this is going to be relevant. And and because I know where this conversation's going, I've got to peek behind the curtain. So I'm going to mention something. Something I learned from you on the multifamily deals that we've looked at. I always thought that when I'm looking at an apartment complex, I'm going to buy this to hold it forever. Like it's the same as buying houses that are going to pay me and my kids until I die. And then they're just going to keep paying. I'm going to keep them forever. Y'all didn't do that with your two deals. Yeah, you, you, talk about. you trying to make me cry? You Playing Roy Firestone over oh, there on me. Wasn't planning to do that, but but you've called it a turnaround, right? Mm. That that's what it is. But what was interesting about that that we're going to get into more is how you approached. And I know this from walking some with you lately. Is it's how you look at the timeline, the renovations, because you're not necessarily renovating this thing top to bottom, one hundred percent. It's a some of these were a five year plan. There was a clear plan in place. We're going to do X amount up to this point, there's still going to be meat on the bone for somebody. Yeah. And then we're going to keep moving down the line. And I didn't know that was even, that even made me look at single family differently after you made that comment to me about multifamily one day. What part of that? Uh, Taking it to a certain point, letting somebody else finish it. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like if you were to buy a single family house that was just down to the studs, awful, you get it roughed in, electrical plumbing, get it to a canvas and then sell it to the next guy. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I may have shared with you the crying comment was uh, came for Foley. Yeah, it was. I think you've heard me talk about how we never should have sold Foley. Yeah, I mean we were we were in that property at a price that I can't even conceive of today, and it's been sold four or five times since we sold it. And in two thousand and uh, I guess we sold it in two thousand fifteen or sixteen. And 
every time it's sold, uh, there's some sort of publication that comes out about it. And our old property manager sends us a text. Make sure you have it. With the new price that it sold for every yeah. time. And she, she's just like, and, and Phil sends it to me if I don't get it. And boy, that, that really was just like sticking the knife and twisting it. It was just, but I'll also tell you on the heels of that, that I wouldn't have met the people that I met had we not sold it. I wouldn't have learned the things that I learned mm. by doing the next one. And then I probably wouldn't be in the hard money lending space mm. now if I just kept Foley. But man, that's, that would have been a keeper. We could, we could run down that rabbit hole of if you knew. If you knew what it was going to do, you wouldn't have let go of it. And if that were the case, would you be doing what you're doing now? Right. So 100%. And that really kind of, you have to remember God's will. You have to remember mm -hmm. that he's sovereign and that people and relationships, the people that he uses to impact you in your life, uh, like Rosemary, for example, who has uh, worked with me to this day. She managed our second property in Columbus, Mississippi for four years and was incredibly instrumental and stabilizing it and turning it around. Without her, we couldn't have done those things. And so just that one relationship alone tells me, you know, shows me God's hand in it and shows me that there's a bigger purpose behind, other than just the net cash that you get out of the deal. <laughs> there you go. In case y'all forgot, when you hear that, you should pay attention. Rewind <laughs> that, listen to it again. All right, so 2011, that's when y'all bought Foley? Something like that. All right, give me the... Uh, quick run up to y'all buying that deal. Yeah. So I guess in episode one, I kind of shared my education on the economy of scale and the numbers and how you break those down and make decisions. And Phil kept me from walking away from a deal of a lifetime over $20,000. Man, was I young and dumb then. But, uh, you know, moving past that, we did take Foley down. We ended up using two different banks on that deal. And here was the interesting thing, too. I said earlier that you really can't get into the apartment game without cash, and that is almost entirely true across the board. It could be somebody else's cash, which is really needs to be part of this conversation. We need to circle back to mm -hmm. that. But we had a piece of collateral that we used instead of cash, and so that served as our equity on the Foley deal. That's what got us into that that deal. So we did get into that deal with no cash. And we, there was a bank in Foley that partnered with the bank in Jackson to do it with us. And that's how we got our financing. That's how we got our start in Foley. So. Okay. Uh, got that with the broker? Oh, uh, yes. I, that's a, hmm. Oh, that is a little, little bit longer. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, <laughs> bought that with two different banks. Was it was it a distressed property? Like it, was it, it was. It was low half rents, half occupied, extremely depressed rents. And the beauty of it was that there was one building with thirty six units that was built in two thousand and eight. So that's like new construction mm -hmm. in our world, that's right? right? Yeah. Um, and then there was a twenty four unit building that was built in seventy eight. So one that was three years old, one that was thirty forty years old. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and it was just the, obviously the the three year old building. There was just so much that we didn't have to do to that. That was that was really that was huge for us. And the twenty four units was a complete overhaul. It was down to the studs. Okay. 
So um, you had you had a complete gut on one, and then you had a carpet and paint on the other. It yeah, was a little more than that. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. That's about it. Compared uh, to the other one, why Foley though? Why, why was that where you landed? Was it? Did you have a radius from? Yeah, and then hindsight, you know, we started talking about radiuses after we bought Foley. Kind of came into view, and I think Foley was probably almost hit that outer edge limit of what we wanted to do in terms of drive time. Five hours or less. Okay. Four hours seemed like a hike to me. Okay. I like it. Five hours or less. And uh, so you've got the deal bought. Okay. And you are full-time flipping at this point. Yep. And you have 20 houses buy and hold in the Jackson market that you're self-managing. The day you take over, do y'all have a Pretty good idea. How long was the closing process? Let me ask that first. 30 to 45 days. 30 to 45 days. Do you already have a pretty good idea of what you're going to do starting out? Yeah, I had a pretty good handle on... I was comfortable with the renovation process through my single family. That's definitely the where my confidence level was. But but really, what, what made it uncomfortable was that I was about to hire a contractor I'd never met before. The beauty of it was, though, that... The banker in Foley had a husband that was a licensed contractor. And I thought to myself, I told Phil, I said, Phil, it can't get any better than this. That is such built-in accountability that the banker's husband is going to be our contractor. And he was credible. You know, we checked him out. So I just thought, I mean, that worked out really good. I mean, it wasn't perfect. No, I mean, that's another thing I found is there's no perfect contractor. Mm. But... You know, I just, that really provided a lot of peace. And in the middle of all this, of course, Phil has open heart surgery. I don't know that I ever told you that. Uh, no, I knew he had. I didn't know it was during the middle of that, during the middle of all right that. Right after we took the property down on the front end of the renovation, he goes into open heart surgery. But I guess the good news is, is that it was my job at that point. I had to take hmm. over. So the bank in Foley, y'all initially went into that deal with your bank, just your bank? Yeah. And then brought them in. Yep. Yeah, I think that, well, that bank reached out to another uh, sister bank. Okay. Foley. Okay. Did that, did the fact that that bank had a contractor tied to the banker you were using, did that sweeten the deal for you at all prior to buying it? Or did it make you go, okay? No, I don't think we knew that until after we bought it. Okay. It was just a happy accident. Got it. And if I'm not mistaken, you spent a good bit of time in Foley, right? Like you stayed in one of those apartments during the week some, right? I didn't stay in one of those apartments, but I did go once a week, and I went there. I went. I was I was travel, traveling to Foley once a week for six months at least. I mean, okay. I you know to be honest, and people need to know this. I mean, I, the business back home did have to suffer. I mean, that was just part of the sacrifice. The flipping or the or both the rentals, everything. I mean, I, I would say the flipping mainly. Okay, you know, I, I definitely had to put my primary focus on on the future, and the future was that apartment complex. Because at that time, you didn't have Rosemary, right? Correct. Mm, it was just Will. It was just Will. That's right. How many How many flips did you have going on at one time, do you think, then? You know, I had to have six or seven, sometimes eight or nine at any one time, you know, to, to yeah. really, I mean, it, it costs to live these days, even you, back then. <laughs> yeah. And so for anybody doing math, that's, you know, you think about eight different projects, eight different contractors or whatever, maybe there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of moving parts. Like that's not, mm. that's not something you disappear from if you're the person in the middle of it. So no. again, if you'll reference episode one, what are you trying to make this? 
right? How involved do you or don't you want to be? Because now you've got somebody really involved in a flipping business, now getting once a week involved in Foley. You couldn't do those if you were W-2'd. No. No, there was a, you know, even even though the Lord brought Phil Wilson, in my estimation, just out of the blue, it was already kind of at that point where I realized that I had to have a few, I had to have a future. I had to have a long game. And I knew that I had to start investing. I mean, that's why I had that package of, of rental houses mm. that I built. But then once we took those down, I just realized, okay, I realized kind of what I had. Or I started to realize it even more as the days went by. And so sacrificing that time of, of driving and, and managing, working with the manager on site, working with the contractor was worthwhile. And that's a, it's a great point. We mentioned at the end of episode one that knowing what the end game is is extremely important before you go into anything, whether it's flipping a house, a buy and hold, or this property here. You know that this may be, did you know at this time it was going to be a five, four to five year play? No, not really. How long did you think it was going to be? Uh, if I had to be honest with you, I don't even know that I calculated that. Okay. I mean, I, maybe we were thinking 18 months. Did you, but on the second one, you knew, you knew better? Yeah, for sure. I mean, because we tripled in size on our second one. Yeah. Um, so my eyes were more wide open. But even at the same time, I, again, transparency is key to our show. I was overly confident going into the second deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, ignorance was bliss in some cases. Well, I think what I mean by the expectation is, and this is just a, it's a maybe mindset's a better term, where you just said that you knew what you had. Yep. So you didn't mind putting the time into it. So yep. what, what that means is you knew the payday coming. Yep. Let's just call it what it is. You knew what that was going to be for you and your family moving forward, right? Yeah. And so you don't mind putting in the time. Or, or maybe it's experience. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's a culmination of things. But somebody who's not... But, but that payout doesn't come until the deal's gone. Right. You may make some money after... 18 months or so when you get some units turned to get some people in there. But unless you finance some income into the deal for you, you're not going to make anything off of that for a while. Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty long gap. Yeah. So if you don't understand that going in and have some other means, again, house flipping business going on. So you got that, you got 20 houses, yada, 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 yada. Somebody's not prepared for that either. It's just different mindset than, than, than going to work every day and getting your check. Now, your 20 houses though. So now we've, we've got fully bought. Okay. At some point you decide those are going to be a pest to you and you have yeah. to get them out of here. Does that happen? How soon after y'all bought Foley? Six months. So within six months, did you sell them all individually or did you sell them as a package? Package. Okay. So once you decided to sell them, how long did that take? Not long. Okay. And you mentioned in the first one, you did regret it. Or you do now? I do now because, I mean, I you know, the hedge funds ended up coming in, as, as we all know, and what was that, 2019 through 21. And I I mean, I, I guess I can't mention the numbers on the show, but it would have been a great payday because all those would have been paid for. Yeah. And so it, it would have been, I mean, a huge. Okay, so the regret is not so much because you would have had cash flowing real estate. It's because you could have sold them for so much more. Yeah, I mean, it was the right, you know, I didn't understand. I couldn't foresee the hedge funds coming and paying what they were paying for the properties. But could anybody, to be fair? 
Yeah, I'm starting to see that there's a little bit more of a demand for mm. packaging up real estate. Mm. And that was I was a little bit blinded by, you know, now that I understand understand the value of scale, I realize the other investors understand that too. I'm not the only <laughs> one that does that. And so, uh, especially when you, you know, with the power of the internet now and putting things out there where people all over the country are looking at a 20-house portfolio and going, you mean I can just push the button? And I can get 20 houses all at one time instead of doing it one at a time. Yes to that. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I saw that with those. Well, I won't go into that. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Folks that just want a turnkey rock and roll investment. Yep. Yeah. Huge. Huge for the out-of-town guy. Yep. That's what I was thinking about. Yep. The out-of-town guy. Yeah. All right. So you get those sold and now you're all in on Foley. Mm. Plus you're still flipping. All right, talk me through, I guess, just getting, just take the next little bit and talk through Foley and the process and kind of what y'all started to tackle first and and what where you went from there. Yeah, that was a unique time. I won't spend a whole lot of time on just the uniqueness of the market then, but you know, we were half occupied, which means we were half vacant, however you want to look at it, <laughs> glass full or half full or half empty. But that was a, there was a little bit of a scary time there, if I had to be honest, because the rental market then wasn't like it is now. Like we can't conceive of not having tenants. It's, as long as you renovate a space and you make it nice and pretty, they will come. Mm. Was the It's kind of our mindset now. I mean, the, the rental market's been so good for so long that I think it just, it, it conditions people's minds to a point where they just think that that's always going to be the case. And mm. it wasn't then. Now, granted, anytime you buy a a multifamily property, there is one negative. There's not too many, but this is one, is that everything is right there. And so the the perception of that property has, to, every one of those units takes on the perception of the history of the property, mm. right? So like you buy a single family portfolio, you may have 50 houses and they're all in different locations and they all have a different perspective perception from each individual as far as the location or anything else that they would perceive about the property. But you're taking on that that with the entire property, right? And this one had a negative perception in the community, right? It did. Very much so. So much so that our first, Phil and I's first night there, I think we were supposed to close on the property the next day. And Phil walked up to the guy at the gas station we were checking out at the counter and he said hey what do you what do you think about this property and he referenced the name of it and the guy was like oh man yeah that's rough mm. and uh i mean i just felt i mean i was just my heart just sank mm. and uh and i could i could see phil swallow <laughs> you know he had a lump in his throat too <laughs> And so we walked away just kind of having to give ourselves a little pep talk and say, it's going to be okay. But y'all, how soon did you change the name? Because that was a big deal, right? Rebranding? Yeah, uh, immediately. We changed it to to Meadowbrook. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, that's the whole key is that whatever perception that people have, whatever the history was, if it's mismanaged, it's usually obviously going to be negative. And so renaming it has got to be the first thing that you do. Mm-hmm. And the signage shows somebody, hey, there's new ownership. It's a new name. It's a new property. Don't expect 
anything else. So, but as a, as an investor though, a value add investor, let me let me say that. Aren't you looking though for the smelly house? You're looking for somebody to go. Like hindsight, looking back, the guy at the gas station goes, "Oh, that's crap." Or you, now you're like, "That's dollar signs." Yeah, yeah. Like, you're looking for somebody else to yeah. overreact. Yeah, and then you you had the stomach to. You, the investor, have the stomach to go do the deal, right? Okay, yeah, we're in. So you changed the name pretty quickly. Did you do any, like, groundwork in the community, letting everybody know, hey, like, any, any sort of community connections to say, hey, by the way, this is new. We're the owners. We're turning around. Or did you just kind of let yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, we really weren't sure how much we were going to have to do to be the cheerleaders of that property. You know, we were hoping that we wouldn't have to do anything, that we could just renovate it and... um you know, our our on-site manager would use all the marketing channels that were available and let everybody know what the, what the rent was and hopefully they would come. But there was a period where we were making flyers and, I, you know, I don't know, if so, most people know that there's an outlet mall in Foley mm. and we were two blocks from the outlet mall. And so I remember taking flyers and passing them out in the outlet mall. Mm. And then we even had a, we had a company called Myers Construction that was local there that had several employees from other countries. And so they wanted housing. And so I think we had a block of rooms that we had to, we didn't want to do that. I mean, we want to rent 10 or 15 houses to one company because yeah. you could pull them all at one time, right? Yep. But that was kind of where we were at at the time is, okay, we got to do this. And so we did it, but ended up getting more traction and the trajectory of the rents and the renters began to increase and get on a, on a nice trajectory. And it made renting to those blocks of people not necessary anymore. And I guess the market just started to normalize. Yeah. All right. So you said initially you, you, you didn't put a lot of thought or y'all didn't put a lot of thought into the timeline and how long it might take. But you kind of loosely thought maybe 18 months. Yeah. Like 18 months to get it stabilized or 18 months to make an exit or both? Yeah, probably both. I think we were probably operating in our own minds in a two-year time frame. All right. And so it took how long total? Three. All right. Was there a reason it took an extra year or were y'all just, just didn't, your perception was just short? You yeah, just it had been better. so many years since Phil had bought his property in Fort Walton Beach. That 24 units that I mentioned, I, I guess, briefly on the front end of another show so both of us, either I was completely inexperienced or it had been years since he had done his. So I don't think we really had a point of reference. Yeah. And, I, you know, you and I walked a, a deal locally several months back that had, let's say, 10 different buildings. I think it was 12 units per building maybe. And as we're walking that, we're discussing, because you, you, when, you, when you buy that with tenants in place, there were no empty buildings Right. But you have to renovate these things. That's why you're getting them is because they're value adds. So you have to renovate them to get the rents up to make it make sense. Well, you can't renovate them with people in there. So you, there's a process to, to making them vacant, whatever that means to, yeah. to that situation. So what my eyes were open to then was that's a whole different animal. Like managing the rehab is one thing. That's, it just kind of is. We get that. Yeah. But then managing, getting people out because your goal is to get one building completely empty yeah. in that regard and then renovate that whole thing. Yep. And because for processes, that's what you have to have. Right. Well, then if you need to move to the second, like if your goal is to get this thing 85% renovated before you sell it, right? Yeah. 
then you have to keep your people moving through that project. Well, you start on this one. Well, there's going to be at some point, there may be a span where there's two buildings completely empty, not yep. cash flowing until you can get this one filled back up. And do you shuffle these to here? Well, there's just this point in the middle where really at some point you've got two and a half buildings empty. And that and that's so what I learned, what I'm getting to is there is some part of this process, and this is relevant depending on if you have maybe one big building with a hundred doors or whether you've got a bunch of different scattered site buildings on the same complex, but it takes time. It does. And that was a real slap in the face for me because I remember talking to the contractor. <laughs> that we hired, the banker's husband, that is, in Foley. And I had this idea that, you know, you're going to do it just like a house. You'd come in and, and do the woodwork, the trim first, and then you'd paint. But I would, you know, we had 24 vacant units, basically. I mean, we, we, had, we had to evict some, a few folks, but let's just say we had a 24 vacant units. Well, I, in my mind... Andy was the contractor's name. I said, Andy, I, you know, we'll just go get them all at one time. And then I, he said, well, he said, I, I've done a couple of these before. He said, we've typically, we've done four to five at a time. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, that's going to take forever. But then, you know, there's this fancy word called absorption rate. And when you realize that the market can only absorb a certain amount of units coming online at any one time, you know, what he was saying was he was guiding me in the right direction. Mm. And so I had to kind of realize, okay, I'm not the expert here. I mm. got to realize this guy's done this a few times. What he's saying makes sense. And so. Which is huge, huge nugget here uh, to point out that the people you surround yourself with in that renovation, though they may not be the investor, yep. quote unquote, they're the expert. Yep. He's done this before for somebody else. And I can think of countless times you've told me stories about closing attorneys and different folks giving you ideas just as a suggestion, right? And you went, pride shoved aside, you could go, oh, yeah, well, look at that. And this is one of those, had you not listened to that guy, you would have just, just what we would have, all of us would have done, what we always do. Yeah. Oh, this is what I'm, this is what I've always done. That's right. That's interesting. And he, he may not have even known what he was doing. He was just saying, I've done a few of these. Yeah, and he didn't use the word absorption rate, I can assure you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so were those 24 that were vacant, were they like all side by side or were they scattered throughout? They were pretty close. They were, um, I think we had buildings of, of four units each. And uh, Okay. So yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was an interesting process. So you did those, you worked that, you did them five rooms at a time is kind of what you did? Yeah, yeah, we we did four to five at a time. And uh, did you move um, current tenants? Did you move some of them around to the new units as you went, if you liked them or if they were good tenants? Uh, I think we did. I mean, you know, that's what we've done in both of our complexes. We've always offered the existing tenants an opportunity to upgrade because, you know, we're going from, they're probably living in something that hasn't been updated in a bit. So we're giving them an opportunity to move into an updated unit. So that's... Uh, but, you know, people are accustomed to paying what they pay. So that's, yeah. no, no, most of the time they don't take advantage of that. Okay. So you, you bought fully. You did five units at a time. You bought it with a manager in place, correct? Yes. You kept the same manager. We did. All throughout the process. Everything worked well. That's right. Um, you were there once a week. Yeah. How long were you there at a time, typically? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was spending the night and I was there the whole day. 
and then I, the whole next day, and then I would I would drive back. So a day and a half to two days or so a week, yeah. you were down there. Yeah. Um, looking back on it, would you have to do that again if you did that same deal, or is there a way to do it without you having to do that? Yeah, I think you would. I think there's uh, there would be no no substitute for it. And you know, one of the things I learned too, which I guess slightly off topic, is that going back to having to unfortunately evict some tenants and then taking a building at a time, we we had more of that at at the place in Columbus. So I would say like there's terminology I'm about to use where you've got a, a value add property and then you've got a property you have to reposition. Okay. A value add would be more like, hey, you know, they're under rented by let's say a couple hundred bucks a unit. And you're gonna go in and do a light to medium renovation and, and create value to where you can now rent it for $200 more than your existing rent. And then there's, that would be Foley. And then Columbus, the average rent was, I mean, there were some units rent for 350, two bedroom, one bath or one, one. And then, but our average rent was four to 425 in Columbus. But the whole property was next to a bunch of doctor's offices. So we could see, some value in the area and know that, okay, we had what we call a C property in more of a B plus area. So that, that dynamic alone let us know, okay, there's some real upside here. Even though the rents have remained so low for so long and there's such a low perception of the property, given the area and knowing what we can do from a construction standpoint to, to give this a facelift, over time, we really feel like we can reposition this property. Mm. And so repositioning really means that you've taken an asset that's been hanging into a C-class area or asset class and bringing it up to more of a B. Yeah. I think I used the word turnaround earlier, but that's that's what that's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Reposition is a better terminology. And I think what's interesting to point out there is that is not dissimilar to flipping a house. You're not going to go into a neighborhood... That's a C class neighborhood, and you really don't use classes when you're when you're doing neighborhoods like you do right. multifamily. But the whole rule in flipping is you don't want to be the biggest house in the neighborhood, right? So you're not going to go into a, a D class neighborhood and make an A class property. You'll never get your money back. Same thing with the that's the exact same mentality. What's interesting there is really Foley. Y'all had a good area, and you were getting into that property, and you said, "What you what was." What was the term you used? Add value add. Yeah. The value add. It was yeah. a value add property. All right. So you're making a value add play here. And you looked at, you probably looked at the area, but you were really, that, that whole story, you talked more about the asset than you did the area. Yeah. For the most part. You mentioned the outlet malls, but that's about all you said. Within the first two seconds of talking about Columbus, which we're headed to next, you mentioned the area. And uh-huh. so it was a little bit more of a, maybe you learned more on the first one. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm more asking here, but you, it seems like you looked at that a little bit more globally. Because Columbus, Mississippi is not really somewhere that's on anybody's radar no. for investing. No, and it probably shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> y'all have done the only deal there, right? I mean, uh, but but you y'all had the y'all said, wait a minute, there's okay, there's doctors' offices, there's some draw here, yep. and this thing is a blight on this main. And that happened again. I know more about it that we'll yep. get into, but there's a blight right here that needs to be fixed. Yeah, you know. All right, so let's let's end Foley, and then we'll get to to Columbus. So. And I know we're blowing through some of this, but but we're just trying to get some high levels sure, of, yeah. of, of that 2000 list. So now we're in 2015, 16? Yeah. Okay. 
So Foley, did y'all take it all the way to completion, like fully renovated everything, or did you stop somewhere? We we really did. I mean, that was unique because normally there's not enough money in the budget to to renovate every unit. No, that's the misconception, I think, from most single-family investors, that if you buy an apartment complex, you renovate every unit just like you would renovate a whole house. But if you look at the cost of renovating every unit, first of all, you can't kick everybody out to renovate, number one. You don't want to do it because mm-hmm. you're— you're kicking out paying customers. Your bank won't let you. Yeah, right. That's, there you go. That's that's a great point. So yeah, I mean you you're um, you're just having to do that selectively. So you pick, uh, let's say a percentage of units. You renovate those, and so when you go to remarket that property, they're gonna your your broker is gonna use uh, that block of units that that you renovated, and they're gonna they're gonna show what's called a proven value add. Mm-hmm. You proved the value. It's one thing to see the value, right? to envision the value, but it's a whole other thing to prove that out. And let's just, somebody may be asking themselves now, well, wait a minute. If I'm going to buy a multifamily and there's not going to be enough room in the budget to renovate everything, well, what, what gives? And so I think if we were to just play hypotheticals for just a second, if you were to have kept Foley yeah, and you, let's just say you got 80% of it renovated, but there's not enough money in the budget to do the next 20. We knew that on the front end. There's not going to be enough yeah. to do this. The idea is you get them renovated, get the proven value add, you get new tenants, new cash flow. You get it to a point where those new tenants, if you're, if you're managing it correctly, you're holding back a certain amount each month out of your cash flow to pay for things in the future. Yeah. Right. And so when you've done your job on the first 80%, that now pays for the next phase whenever you decide to do it, right? That's where the money comes from. Yeah, renovating out of cash flow. That's a good, that's a good topic. And, uh, you know, that's uh, what you're really doing is you're taking, you're spending capital with what we call CapEx, capital expenditures, and you're taking your cash flow and devoting that to cap, CapEx. Mm. And so either you can do that and create more value on your property or you can leave it for somebody else to do. That's just a decision that each investor has to make for any individual property. But the neat thing is, is that whatever block of units you have, whatever percentage of the units you have, if you had a 100-unit complex and you did 30 units, you know, you've got 30% of your units that you've proven value on. How much do you need to prove, right? Mm -hmm. So then they can say, well, look, if you just do what they did, then you too can realize the same return. So they're, they're able to sell these returns as if almost they've always already happened because they have. Yeah, that's great. So while you're looking at, or while y'all are getting ready to exit Foley, all right, we're 2015, you said? Yep. 15 and a half. Are you already looking for the next deal or are you waiting until you close this one out to start looking? Yeah, we we are because we uh, the the conversation went to ten thirty one exchanges, mm. and so we wanted you know we, I mean all the I mean if you're an investor you've heard of a ten thirty one exchange, and it, CPA. yeah, and it sounds really sexy on the front end, but you know we found out that you know that kicking the can down the road is a really good way to describe a ten thirty one exchange in a negative way. I mean, there's positives to ten thirty ones, but you're not avoiding taxes. You're just deferring taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why y'all felt a little bit of an urge to, well, you felt an urge to start looking. Yeah. At and that's quickly. the pitfall to the 1031 is that you are now a motivated buyer. 
because mm. there's so many rules to a timeline. They place a such a tight timeline on you finding a property, and then you have to identify what those properties are, three or four properties, and then you have to execute on on a contract and a closing within such a short window of time that you you lose your leverage in buying the next deal. Mm. Because you're also limited, and again, you should ask a professional if you're curious about 1031s, there's multitudes of articles out there, but you're also limited by not just timeline, but but value. Yeah. It's got to be of equal or... It does, yeah. yeah. It's got to be a certain percentage of greater value to get the full credit on your 1031. And so that's that's one caveat that we really got educated on and it. And so I would just say if you if you think you want to do a 1031 just make sure you know all the rules before you decide that's something you want. Yeah, to do. it would behoove you to have somebody who who knows them in and out that could look at your situation and go, "Okay, relative to this deal, this is the this is I'm not going to say penalty. This is the tax you would have to pay if you didn't roll it." And then if you could have some sort of a spreadsheet there running parallel with the deals you're looking at, and if you felt yourself pressured into something that you would otherwise have been able to get cheaper, from a negotiation timeline, look at what the cost and the, the, the look at the analysis of that and say, well, could I have gotten it for less if I wasn't so worried? And yep. Is it worth eating that chunk to do it? You never know. Again, every situation is different. Well, and people uh, find out really quick that you've got a 1031 that you're having to execute on. And so they then will take advantage of you, of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. This guy will pay more because he's a 1031 buyer. Why don't we sit there and ask, what's their situation? Right. Why is it still in the market? Yeah. Why did I, the investor, get this call today? You know. All right. So you buy Columbus, and this, I'm glad you brought up value add and reposition because I, I didn't have, I've spent more time with you talking about the Columbus deal than I have the Foley deal. I've even got your Google Drive folder of the Columbus deal. Oh, yeah. And kind of some initial thoughts on that. And then thinking about repositioning the, the entryway and all those things uh, that I want you to get into. Oh, yeah. Because um, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, didn't, was the city involved in some of that discussion? Like you went to some folks and said, what do you think we should do here? Didn't you do some of that? Well, we we talked with a, uh, a local landscape architect here in okay. Jackson. And then we, um, there actually there was a, a little bit of back and forth between Phil and I and the landscaper and, and none of us could really agree on what we needed to do because the space was kind of tight on the front of the property. But to me, the front of the property was everything because we were trying to reposition the property. So we had to completely change somebody's perception of, of this property moving forward. And I knew the only way to do that was take my house flipping mentality and my house flipping days and use all the tricks that I could use to make the front of those two buildings that faced what was Hospital Drive in Columbus and make it look as fancy and, and high-end as I could, even if it wasn't what we were going to replicate on the back of the property. Mm. All, the, all the interior units would look the same, but the front of those buildings, you know, we put hinges on the shutters. You know, we put 19 to 21-inch lanterns on the front. We put real cedar posts on the front. I mean, it looked really good. And the, and the one point of contention, not real contention, because at the end of the day, Phil's the numbers guy and I'm the I'm the aesthetics guy, I guess. And so I'm looking at that going, man, we've got to have a circular driveway and we've got to get rid of this big pine tree so that we can have a nice, beautiful stand of zoysia 
grass. So my vision, my vision was a huge, flush, radiant lawn of, of beautifully maintained zoysia that could survive beautifully with no shade. And then we would plant some little trees here and there, uh, some new some new trees. And then we'd have this circular driveway and this beautiful sign at the front. And you saw all those pictures. Yeah. And I think I told you, Tommy Weiss was the owner of that property at one time, and he's from Starkville. And if you're from anywhere in the Golden Triangle, you probably know that name. But he calls me after the renovation, maybe a, I don't know, it's 12 months later, maybe. And he says, man, I would have never thought that you could do that to that property. He said, in a million years. I mean, it was, he was yeah. blown away. I wish we had a screen where I could show you the before and after because it, it completely changed the whole outlook of that, yeah. of that property. And so to your point earlier, value add versus reposition. When you went into Columbus, did you know, I guess y'all knew on the front end that was going to be a reposition play. Did you know at the time that it was different than what you were doing in Foley? No, not really. I was, I was a little bit deceived, to be honest with you. I was overconfident. Well, here, and here's the main reason I point that out. Anybody new listening, this is a, that was 2016, 2023. I'm bad at math. There were seven or eight years after that's happened. You've told this story a lot. Mm-hmm. So we've, and you and I have had this discussion a lot. So we've perfected the way this sounds, right? This song and dance of how you got into this deal. Yeah. You really didn't have it all figured out. This is the other side of that's the That's right. Okay. So some of these things are not realized until they're done. And that's all right. Yeah. It's okay. But that's why it pays to get around some folks that know what's going on so you can ask some of these questions. But just know that he didn't know all of that going in. He may have realized it pretty quickly. Oh, this is different than what Foley was. Yeah. yeah but, you know, maybe he didn't. So anyway, I just want to point no, that out. No, I mean, that, that's so true. I mean, I, I've, again, ignorance is bliss sometimes. You've got to take the plunge and you do have to, to a certain extent, be willing to learn along the way, but it is critical, as you say, to have a community of people around you to bounce things off of. One of the things we learned in Columbus that we didn't in Foley for just, you know, different circumstances, um, but this would probably apply to most apartment complexes, is that, I, you know, you, you, you renovate those two front buildings on Hospital Drive like we did in Columbus, and immediately the conversation was, okay, what are we going to get in rent on these new buildings based on what we're already getting? How much are we going to improve that? And then what about, like, how are, how are you really going to realize getting $720 for a two-bedroom, one-bath, 700-square-foot apartment versus 400 Because there's some units that share a parking lot behind these two buildings that are paying 400 and like it or not, wrong or right, the reality is, is that it takes a second and third generation tenant sometimes to realize the value add that you're trying to get because it's going to be difficult, number one, for that tenant to buy into the fact that this property has been existing for however many years with the same perception. And mm-hmm. overnight, you're just going to change that perception and people are going to buy into that? Maybe not. Or partially. So the answer really is partially. And so the other thing is, is that 
that new tenant that you're asking to pay $720 may not want to share a parking lot with that tenant that's paying $400. So those are the risks that you have to take and realize that you may not get the rent that you want to get in that first generation tenant. It may take a couple of move outs or what we call second and third generation tenants to realize that value that you think you've created on the, you know, through the renovation process. Which is why you can't, you can't expect it within the first year, mm-hmm. right? It's going to take a couple of years. And I'll say it, I'll say the same thing, but a little bit differently how you told me before is, so when, when we talk about managing the property, mismanaging, like you, you, you buy these uh, multifamily deals that are mismanaged and they're mismanaged from a couple of ways. It could be poor upkeep of the property, which leads to typically lower rents, which could lead to a less desirable tenant. Which, and then mismanagement can also mean like, what do you allow to go on inside of that complex? Do you have leash laws? Do you not? Do you have abandoned cars that are parked in your parking lot? Do you have trailers that are parked everywhere? Like, what are you allowing the property to look like? And so to your point of the 750 parked next to the 400, I think the way you described it to me was, do you want, you've got your $400 tenant who's changing their oil in that parking lot. <laughs> Because the manager let them do that. They've got some pseudo mechanic shop going on in the back end, parking next to that person that's paying 700 and something dollars. Yeah. And so that's... Thanks for adding some detail to that. Yeah. That's probably helpful. (laughs) Trying to paint the picture. Yeah. And like, not that there's anything, we're just, we're just saying that that's what you're going to run into. And that's what he means by having two to three years to, to change that perception and to get that reposition going on. And then y'all's, if I remember right, Columbus was was kind of front to back. You, you, you made the new entrance coming off a of hospital drive and then you had buildings going on behind it. And so you obviously had to make the face of it perfect. Yep. That's where the perception starts to change. Yes. Now, maybe going, well, that's just, well, if you're only going to do the front end and the rest <laughs> of it looks like crap. Well, no, there's a process, people. Like you're, you're working through it. Again, this is not a six-month play. No. This was how many years? This one was four, four years. Five, yeah. Four years. That's a long commitment. It is. Now, knowing that you had done Foley in three, now you have a better idea of what kind of commitment you're up for here. Yeah. Right. Did that change? I guess it was it where you did you feel better about going into this one knowing that? I know you said you were more confident going into this one, maybe overly confident. I realized how overconfident I was midway through this one. And there mm-hmm. was it was not an easy ride on either one of them. And looking back on it, we we paid too much for Columbus, but at the end of the day, did we really, you know? Mm. It's just that, you know, when you're doing a, when you're taking over a, a mismanaged property and you plan on being as aggressive as we did, I'll never forget when Phil said to me, because I mean, I was the one that kind of had to remind uh, our partnership of what the plan was originally anyway. And he, because He'd said back to me, he said, you mean we're going to be kicking out paying customers? <laughs> I said, yeah, unfortunately, I think that's exactly what we're about to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Phil being the numbers guy and the accountant and the bookkeeper, you know, it was hard to hit for him to conceive of the fact that, that we're going to have to ask paying customers to go if they're not willing to, to pay the new price that we have to realize, you know, to pay our bills. Yeah. Well, that, that gets into knowing your numbers. You hear people say all the time, you can't do a deal unless you know your numbers. How do you invest if you don't know your numbers? Well, part of knowing your numbers is if we're going to kick out X amount of tenants, there's going to be a gap there with that, with no income. And so one, do you, is it, will it cash flow on its own during that time? If not, how, what are we doing about it? 
Have, yeah. we, have we brought money to buy that down? Have we financed that in? There's there's a period there where you will have to, it'll hurt, it'll hurt just a little. I'm glad you, you said it because I guess you've heard me say it a few times. In both, I mean, although I, I've only flipped two apartment complexes, that's been my experience is there's that period where, you, you know, you're, it's addition by subtraction. And so you're, you're not, you don't have as many tenants that are paying rent. And so, but you're still paying the interest mm. and the principal every month. Now, that does bring up a, a little side note that most of these properties you take down, you need an interest-only period to restabilize these properties. And so, it's typical for a bank or anybody that's financing this to give you 18 or even 24 months of an interest-only period. You hear some people say, I owe for interest-only. But you need that period because you are going to go through those times where it's gonna, you're going to feel squeezed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're paying principal and interest, it's just too much of a squeeze. And banks, that's what they do, y'all. If you're listening to this and you've never, and you're kind of wondering, like banks are a fantastic resource too. When you get a really good lender who understands multifamily, who understands that project for a green investor, like you should never approach that going, well, I better know all about this. So they're going to railroad me. And this, no, that's banks are regulated. They've got, there are certain things they can and can't do. And their job, if you don't do, if you don't perform well, if you're not a good operator, they, they, that's not good for them either. They want you to succeed. And yep. so whatever they can do to help you, that's what they're trying to do is get the deal to the table with you within their regulations. So that's a really good resource too, as you're trying to figure out how to get into this. And I, I've just heard you enough. Y'all have had some good ones along the way who, who have really helped y'all get to where you need to be too. Mm. Um, all right. So Columbus was a reposition. Y'all, y'all took that one how far to completion percentage-wise probably before you sold it? Do you know, I, I think we were 30% renovated units. And did somebody come along and make an offer or did y'all... 30% of 163 units. 30% of them before you made the exit. So there's still a lot of meat yeah. for somebody. Yeah. Did y'all put that on the market or did somebody... Okay. We did. We did. And and we, we learned another yet valuable lesson... We ended up getting a Fannie Mae loan, a, a non-recourse. There's, again, the sexy language of non-recourse. We thought that that was what we needed. That's what we had to have. We didn't understand the whole, you know, we, we didn't really embrace the, the prepayment penalty. We, sh- we should have talked to some of our brokers that we had great relationships with more extensively, but we got sucked into the refinance game where we we thought we were going to cash out a huge number and the interest rates ticked up a good bit during that process. And we looked, we were almost going to get back close to seven figures in cash that we were going to- On the refi. On the refi, we were going to reinvest that. And by the time we closed, we ended up paying 250 grand just to close. <laughs> I want to make sure y'all heard that. Uh, and that's a good point of a couple of points on a single family house versus a couple of points on a hundred and something door multifamily project. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. It, it is a big deal. And um, you, your first initial comment that I guess I'll circle back to is analyzing these deals. Like I, I quickly learned why you know, because of the dollar amount is so much more, you're dealing in such larger number figures in the multifamily world that 
that naturally the analysis, the underwriting that it takes to feel comfortable before you take down a deal like that is so much more sophisticated. It's so much more extensive and it, and it should be. There's formulas out there, cap rates, net operating, net operating income, all of those things need to factor into to your due diligence so that you understand what you're about to get into. Mm-hmm. The numbers are just too big not to have all those boxes checked because as you and I have discussed, most single family investors lo- at the local level don't don't even know what a cap rate is, don't know how to get a cap rate. Um, by the way, you can Google it. It's a very simple formula. Um, but, but in the multifamily world, you've got to know that. Yeah, and I can say this after working with you, and, and just some of the deals we've looked at, and then even with our lending business, we, we say the word cap rate a lot now in the single family space. It's not an end-all, be-all metric for us, but it's one we use just as a, as a temperature gauge to, yep. to decide. And there, there's so many rules of thumb, the 1% rule, the, the, you can name 100 for back of the napkin math, and that's just one of those things. But I think looking at those more complex deals or whatever you want to say there that has some more, just more financial mechanics to it, it, it just puts that thought in your brain or different thoughts, different methods um, that when you look at single family, you just become a little bit more lethal, I think. And it makes you see the numbers a little bit different because you've been through the process of underwriting multifamily or, or commercial or whatever you want to call it. So you exit Columbus in 2016. No, I'm sorry. That was uh, actually uh, the purchase. So we exit in 2020. 2020. And that's when what you just said a little bit ago was the deals were done at that point. The deals that y'all wanted in your area were no longer there. And that's where yeah, the Southeast will call it was our, would be our area. Yeah. Five mile, five hour radius drive time. But yeah. And, and, and this goes back to the single versus the multi we've talked, we've propped up multi like it's, it's everything, but, but I'm actually invested only in single family now. Yeah. That's the place I parked some of the proceeds mm. from the apartment world until the apartment world and that climate, that environment gets back to being more advantageous mm-hmm. to a buyer. And, and go back and listen to episode one on some of the differences we pointed out in single and multi and, and you can get better clarity. This, this, this episode's obviously all about breaking down the multi, but you've got a great point that, and this goes, this goes right back to the why of the person and what they're doing. Cause you've got some folks you could Google. I mean, you could, any of your big guys that are in more, I say big guys, I mean, billion dollar asset guys and multifamily. That's all they do is that they buy big, nice A-class properties. And that's what they do. That's, yeah. what, that's it. For guys like us that are, we're sticking right here in the Southeast. We don't mind single. We don't mind multi. Actually, there are some that's too big. We don't even want to fool with that. That's not really what we do because of lifestyle. It's a yeah. lifestyle choice at that point. Right. And phase of life. Yeah. So when you're when your investors like us, which is what this podcast was created for, is we really we created it for our area, right? Yeah. To talk about real estate investing here and then our experiences. And so for guys like us that are what I call multifaceted, maybe. Yeah. Multidisciplined. There's several different things that we'll look at and tackle. The beauty of that is when you roll out of that multifamily deal, you have to pivot. There's no more there are no more multifamily deals. So you pivoted into now single family, right? Yeah. So you're not sitting here saying that one is the end all be all, which is so interesting again from the from the first episode. Not only is it dependent on the person, it's dependent on the time. Yeah. 
So you've got this, let's just say you being anybody has this sum of money in their hand. What can you do with it? A lot of different things. At the moment, multifamily was not trading very well for us, for, for these guys. And so single family became the thing, as did Southeast Lending, as did any other business ventures that each of us has dove off into. And I think that's a great thing to point out is just because you're in something like knowing your why is the big, golly, we're back there again. Knowing the why of what you're doing is such a big deal. And when you know what that is, there's several vehicles to get you there, right? Yep. It's kind of like chasing the feeling versus the outcome. And then whatever you're doing, there's a multiple ways to get that feeling. It doesn't mean you jump around and squirrel all over the place, but it does mean that you have metrics that you have to hit and there's multiple ways to get them. Yeah, 100%. There is a time and a place to invest in either asset, you know, whether it's single or multi. There's there's just no question. Time and a place for everything? Is that what you'd say? Hmm. There it is. Episode two, multifamily deal breakdown. (laughs) 